0: Father, we do thank you so much once again for gathering your people together. We thank you for uh, just the whole past uh, number of weeks in this class. Thank you, Lord, (laughs) for your word and that you have revealed yourself and you've done so consistently. You've done through in history. And, Lord, you have done so um, in, in a way that... Magnifies your glory and that is designed to give us a full assurance of faith. So, Lord, I pray that you would please just be working that assurance in us as we grow in deeper love for your word. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, so, like I began to mention, uh, tonight's is going to be just a little bit different from what we've done before. We're going to be looking at a few specific examples of types specifically in the mosaic covenant and see how they're fulfilled in Christ because this idea of typology is so important not just for understanding the covenant and covenant theology but it's important for understanding really the whole old testament how it's how it applies how we understand it in its own context how we understand it in terms of what it teaches us about Christ, uh, how it anticipates Christ. And so it really does just make it, um, uh, understanding types makes our reading of scripture so much more rich. It makes our understanding more deep. And it, um, again, it just draws it, it magnifies for us the way that God has just so perfectly woven together this plan throughout history, bringing it to fulfillment. Um, And so if you guys remember, the very first week, you know, we had a very complicated definition about what typology is and what types are. But just as a refresher, very basically, typology is the study in scripture of the correspondences between certain people or places or events or institutions in the Old Covenant and how those uh, are brought to their fuller meaning in christ in the new covenant that's a very simple explanation you see it as promise and fulfillment or you know shadows and the realities brought to light but again a few things that i've um, brought up throughout the class just to keep in mind that first of all types are always divinely instituted and so if we're trying to you know discern something in the Old Testament that may be a type. We can't just you know, come up with whatever we think fits. That's when you get into allegory. But rather, we look for divine intent. We look for scriptural, biblical, real connections put there by God, not just that we, what we come up with in our minds. So we have to be careful when we're dealing with typology because it's really easy to slip into allegory where just everywhere in the Old Testament, oh, this... You know, this is points to Christ. You know, that we got to be be thoughtful and careful how we do it. So
1: it does, like, you would find it, uh, the, the anti type of the fulfillment in the New Testament. That's how it really corresponds. Like, so for instance, when Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the pole in the wilderness, that's kind of mm-hmm. that, that would make that pole a type. Yes. And then Christ, or when Jesus says, this temple down there three days
0: so it's kind of confirmed exactly yes exactly and sometimes sometimes yeah and sometimes you have it explicitly like that other times it's more you see the context and you're able to piece it together in that way so like i said we're going to look at a few examples tonight that are going to help out but that's the one thing there's divine intent Um, Another thing that I've really tried to press in this class is that the types are significant in and of themselves in their own context. Like we talked about last week with the sacrificial system. Yes, it is glorious and it points forward to Christ. It's fulfilled in Christ, but it is very significant and it does something real in its context. It's not only meaningful because it points to Christ. They're meaningful in themselves. Um, And also the types always point to something that is both greater and is different from itself and so there's an escalation between the type and its fulfillment it's greater but also the fulfillment is different so the anti type the fulfillment it's not it is like the type but it's not the same as the type it's not as if it's just the same old thing repackaged it's there's a similarity but they're not identical um And so, you know, again, just to keep in mind, as we go through some of these tonight, um, in order to understand the types and how they are to be properly interpreted and, and what they show us about Christ, we're going to try to think carefully about what these meant in their own context, the significance for the people who actually experienced them and enjoyed them. Um, and also keeping in mind as well that although these were historical people or institutions or events, they were designed at that time by God with a certain looking forwardness that the people who experienced them were to see that and respond in faith with the understanding that God in his grand scheme is doing something like this, that this isn't Everything that God is doing, you know, again, we talked about the sacrificial system, you get that a lot in Hebrews, that the insufficiencies and the inherent, um, what's the word I'm looking for, deficiencies of the types, they anticipate something greater. And so the people were to, it was designed, yeah, for the people to appreciate them and to use them and enjoy them as they were presented, but also to anticipate something better that's similar. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. If he was 11, <coughs> exactly. 10,
0: but, you think 11, exactly. Yeah. And we're going to spend a little bit of time in Hebrews tonight towards the end. And another reason, one other thing to mention why it's important to, um, to discuss and to, you know, try and discern this again, this isn't just high theology. It's not just to mm-hmm. make us feel smarter, but this really does help us in our practical walk with Christ. Because the types, when you realize that the New Testament is ought to be read in the context of the Old Testament, it came to the original audience, you know, Jewish people who understood Moses, who knew the Old Testament, understanding the Old Testament types in their context, understanding what they did, it helps us to better understand Christ's work, again, because Christ's work is similar. There's a resemblance to what God was doing in the Old Testament. And so it does help us to understand Christ's work in its own context. Um, Again, just like last week, we talked about the sacrifices, how they really, truly, actually did atone for people's sins in terms of the Old Covenant. They didn't make you right with God ultimately, but they made you not guilty under the Old Covenant. And so because... That is a type pointing forward to Christ. It helps us to understand that Jesus' sacrifice makes us right in terms of the new covenant. It makes us not guilty in terms of the new covenant, um, meaning ultimately as we stand before God on judgment day, not guilty. So when you understand what the old covenant things actually do, you better understand what Christ does. Um And the reason why we're focusing on the Mosaic Covenant, because this is all throughout the Old Testament, but the Mosaic Covenant is the most densely typological. I said it, I think, in the last couple of weeks that the greatest revelation of the mystery of Christ comes with Moses. This is the huge chunk. This is like if you're putting a puzzle together, like a huge piece in the middle that really starts to give form, and you start to see, okay, this is what... You know things are starting to come into shape. With Moses is the biggest chunk, the most clear picture, um, and so going through this um, helps to understand both the historical events as they were laid out and um, the corresponding works of Christ. So we're going to look at four tonight, and I mean you know there's way more than four, and we could spend a ton of time on all of these, but and I'm going to try to move decently quickly um, through these the first one is the Passover so turn please to Exodus chapter 12 and some of these are going to be familiar refreshing but again I hope that given the background of what we've done in this class for the previous nine weeks and you know we've really been hitting hard uh, how this all, you know, works together in history, how God's plan and purpose is developing in history. If I, if I could, if I knew where a handy Bible was, I'd grab you. I got my Greek Bible, if you want that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Old Testament passages. here, I can use my phone, that's oh, okay. too small. I can use my phone
1: too.
0: I'm sorry, I and so, I have a Bible on my phone Come on guys, <laughs> oh, wow. this is
1: 2022
0: I know. Um, Anyway, so I hope that, you know, even though some of this will be stuff that you guys are already aware of I hope that with the background that we've got in this class It kind of brings it more to light and gives us a greater appreciation for it <clears throat> So, the Passover, we have an Exodus 12, we'll begin in verse 5 We okay. read... Uh, this is the Lord speaking. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hands. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now go down to verse 21. Then Moses and all the elders of Israel uh, said to Moses, called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lands for yourselves according to your clans. You shall observe this as a right this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord your God has promised you, you shall give you shall keep this service, and when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? And you say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. So, with the Passover, again, we understand, first of all, if we're thinking of this typologically, trying to think, okay, what does this point forward to? Like I've been saying throughout this class, we don't jump straight to how it's fulfilled in Christ. We first want to understand it in its own context and in its own significance. And clearly, the Passover was hugely significant in its context. This was an event in which God simultaneously delivered his people from slavery and also um, executed judgment on his enemies. And the judgment that was promised was the death of the firstborn son in each household. And understand this judgment. It's not, you know, any, you know, death in a household is. Uh, heartbreaking and devastating. But this particular judgment, it wasn't just, you know, a child dies, one of your children will die. The death of the firstborn in the household um, was cutting off the heir, the one who was primarily responsible to carry on that family name and the family lineage. It was a sort of disinheritance. Um, You know, really, it was... It was a judgment on the whole family and put together a judgment on the entire nation. And so, again, it's not just a child in the home dies. Very significant that this represented national devastation and judgment, cut off, cast out. And also important to note that being a Hebrew, being a descendant of Abraham, did not automatically uh, spare you from this judgment God said that he was going to visit the judgment on the land of Egypt. He was going to pass through the land of Egypt and kill the firstborn of every household. It was only by throwing oneself at the mercy of God, by sacrificing that spotless lamb, and then um, putting the blood on the house as a covering for that household. So you have this element of... The judgment of God is coming. God has proclaimed this way of salvation from the judgment. It is by the sacrifice of the lamb and the blood of the lamb specifically covering the household so that God spared the judgment. Um, And so that deliverance was based on a substitutionary sacrifice. Um, And so it was it was only the blood of that specific sacrifice uh, that could serve as a proper covering for the people, right? So very specific. And again, I know that we're you know moving quickly through these, um, but I want to try to get through these tonight. So that's the Passover event, very specific in its own context, meaningful. This is a historical event, and it's fulfilled in Christ. We're going to be doing a lot of flipping tonight. You guys don't have to flip here. Um, but John chapter 1, John's Gospel um, John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming toward him, says, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." And so, right there, as I mentioned in the beginning, we need to have biblical warrant for, um, you know, what's a, what does a type correspond to. Right here in, in John 's Gospel with this proclamation by John the Baptist, you have Jesus being described in specific terms that call to mind the Passover that this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world and so that that establishes the divine connection between the Passover and Christ and so Jesus function we can discern from that again even the words of John the Baptist the people in his day understood what that was a reference to and so it gives a, a hint of um what Jesus mission in the world is when you understand that he's fulfilling or he's uh he is amplifying something that was already there in the Passover and so, Jesus' function was to serve as a sacrifice like the Passover land. Again, not the same as the Passover land, but similar. And so, you have the same elements. The judgment of God is coming on all. There is a, um, there is a day of judgment coming, and the only way to avoid that judgment is to be covered by the blood sacrifice. And even um, the judgment, you know, so where you have in Egypt, there's that uh, type of cutting off, cast out, uh, abs- you know, destroying these households. The, the judgment that comes when Christ returns, the judgment that comes on all is the curse. It is the ultimate judgment. It is actually being cast into the outer darkness Uh, Just like Jesus says, you know, to those, he's going to say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And so much more severe, similar to what happened in Egypt, but much more severe and comprehensive. But unlike the lamb, the lamb whose blood, it covered the people and it covered their sin, Jesus' blood not only covers sin, but it also takes away sin. John the Baptist said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's kind of what we talked about last week with the uh, Day of Atonement, that it's propitiation, the sin being covered, but also expiation, the sin being taken away. It goes beyond just declaring someone is not guilty, but you're declared as positively righteous because the sin has not been just covered, but it's been removed as well. So you see that Jesus, as the fulfillment, is greater in every sense. Not only in that He actually saves us from our sins, but that He um, takes away our sins. He doesn't just cover the sins and spare us from the judgment. Um, and then, if you turn to Matthew twenty-six, you once again get a connection between Jesus and the Passover, and that's of course. Um, with the Lord's Supper and so the Lord's Supper instituted during the Passover feast so again there's a uh, substantial connection that's established and Jesus says during the Passover Matthew 26 verse 26 as they were eating Jesus took bread and after blessing it broke it and gave it to the disciples and said take eat this is my body and he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, "Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins." So you have um, a situation during the Passover meal itself, where Jesus not only begins to institute this this sacrament, but he explicitly describes himself as a sacrifice and specifically mentions his blood as the means of forgiveness of sins that his blood alone will cover our sins. And so again that establishes the connection with that Passover lamb and in its context like I said, yes, it is significant. That's the means by which God passed over judgment, but also it looks forward, and the people were to keep the Passover feast every year, not only as a reminder of what God did for them, but also as a, uh, an object pointing forward in faith to what God was ultimately going to do, because even though the Passover lamb spared them from the judgment in the land of Egypt, it didn't spare them from final judgment. Even though they were able to sacrifice this lamb and their sins at that time were covered for that judgment, it didn't take away their sins. So with Jesus, you have this. And even the element of judgment that I mentioned, um, the Passover, it's not just the deliverance of God's people, it's also judgment on his enemies. And in the cross, it is the place both of redemption and of judgment. And if you turn to Colossians chapter two, like I said, we're going to flip a lot tonight. So bear with me, keep up if you can um in colossians 2 we're told beginning in verse 13 and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh god made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside nailing it to the cross He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so in the cross, you have that means by which the sin can be forgiven, legally covered, removed. But also the cross was the place of judgment on God's enemies. The cross, when Jesus paid the price for the sins of his people, just like um, Paul says there in Colossians that he triumphed over the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. That whereas in um, in Exodus twelve, describing the Passover, Jesus says or God says that He's going to bring judgment on the gods of Egypt, and so that whole nation and the idols of that nation, not only in the Passover but in the ten plagues, were condemned were judged were you know put to shame because god was showing he was greater than these idols of egypt and he had authority over the land of egypt christ with the cross he puts to shame all demonic power all idols all forces you know like jesus says in john before going to the cross now is the ruler of this world judged and so you have not just the sacrifice that um, covers the people's sins, but the judgment of all God's enemies in the cross. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you see the connections there. Um, next one I want to look at is. Do you have something? Mm-hmm. So from the, the Passover then,
1: because I, I know John one he says this is the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world, in uh, First Corinthians five Paul. Explicitly says Jesus, like he's talking about Passover. Yes, he says Jesus is our Passover Lamb. So that's kind of the. But um, is like is the Lord's Supper that anti-type of Passover? Like that's on Passover, it's the it is the fulfillment. And that's why we don't celebrate Passover as such. It has been replaced by the Lord's yeah. Supper. So that's like the. Antitype,
0: right? Um, yes, and I mean and we'll talk more about that when we get to the new covenant. We're okay. gonna talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay. That yeah, there's a there's a replacement, but again, like we have to remember with everything, they're not exactly yes. the same. Just like circumcision and baptism, there's a correspondence, but they're not the yes, same. Okay. Um, can
1: I ask one Yeah, what's up, of course. within that ultimate fulfillment would we even go
0: there or not um the
1: Lord's Supper no no yeah Yeah, the Lord's Supper but
0: then there's that. there's a I think that yes because at the Passover at the at the Lord's Supper Jesus does say I'm not going to drink this cup again until I drink it new with you in the kingdom and so that you know when, when we take the Lord's Supper we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns so there's that anticipation um as far as the Passover lamb and the sacrifice. I think that that is fulfilled in the cross with Christ, but there's still the thread of, you know, the feasts of the Lord in the old covenant. Our our new covenant feast is the Lord's supper, and that's all pointing forward to the marriage feast of the lamb. And so, yes, there is a connection, but I think that specifically the Passover meal itself Is fulfilled in Christ? That's a good question. Because again, it's not there is there are these threads that run through scripture. And so, yes, there's a lot of similarities. It's not like, no, this is only similar to this, but you know, as far as the sacrificial element, especially, because the Passover was more about the sacrifice and I think, less about the union of God with his people, although it's mixed right in with the Exodus, which is very much about the union of God with his people. So the Exodus and the Red Sea event is the next one I want to look at. So if you guys turn over to Exodus 14, beginning in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. That the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up all the night, without one coming near to the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen, and in the morning watched the Lord and the pillar of fire and of the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces, and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And as the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and it returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, and not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So again, first of all, in its own context, obviously significant. The Exodus itself was the event where God delivered his covenant people out from enslavement, that they were incapable of escaping themselves and also had no real desire to escape themselves. I mean, they cried out in their bondage, but when Moses first came and told them, you know, that he was gonna, you know, to told Pharaoh to let them go, they told Moses to get out of there and to not bother with them. And then here again at the Red Sea, Moses, why have you taken us here? It was better that we served the Egyptians. So to people who, not only were unable to escape their slavery, but they didn't really want to escape their slavery either. They were unwilling, at least, to escape. Um, And so it was God delivering them out and bringing them out of a life and out of a land that was filled with perversion and idolatry and into a place where they could have rest and where they could fully and freely worship God. Remember, that's throughout... Moses speaking to Pharaoh, let my people go, that they may go into the wilderness and worship me. That's uh, that's the full Exodus. It was coming out of slavery and out of idolatry into true worship and true rest. Um, and at the fore of all the Exodus from. The 10 plagues to the Red Sea and beyond is God's power to deliver. You have God visibly present in the cloud at the Red Sea. Um, you have the you know clearly supernatural deliverance where there is that miracle of the seas being parted. That God alone is powerful and is able to bring them out of their bondage. So you have that great significance. But also... At the same time, there is a, um, an anticipation of something better. While well, the Exodus delivered them out of physical slavery and was meant to bring them into a physical land, it anticipates and looks forward to a greater deliverance from an even more burdensome and deadly slavery. And so I want you guys to please turn to Romans chapter 6. And, you know, so we talk about types that they can be People, places, institutions like the sacrificial system, or events like the exodus. and so in Romans six, especially, and again, there's language like this throughout the New Testament that talks about our bondage to our sinful nature, our slavery under sin, and it brings up the uh, it brings to mind the Israelites in slavery and how God had to powerfully bring them out of their slavery. And so, if we look at Romans 6, beginning in verse 16, Paul writes, Do you not know that if you present yourselves obedient to anyone as slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and to its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here especially, you see Paul talking about the sinful nature that we are born with is an enslaver. Um, it, it exercises dominion and domination over us and we are willingly obedient to it. Like Paul says, you're willingly submitting yourselves in obedience to sin, therefore you are slaves to your sin. It's also a slavery that we are unable to escape from. In, you know, Like Paul says in Ephesians, that we are dead in our sins all over the place. Um, it's a It's a slavery that we are unwilling to escape from. We love our sin. Uh, In Romans 8, we're told that we cannot keep the law. We don't want to keep the law. We don't want to submit ourselves to God. And it is only Christ who can powerfully deliver us by his might and in a way that glorifies him, the way that God was glorified in the Exodus, um, who's able to deliver us. You remember Christ in the Gospels talks about how He binds up the strong man and then plunders his house. And, you know, we have in the Exodus, we know that the people of Israel plundered the Egyptians and their riches, but also Pharaoh's workforce was plundered from them. That God reached in and took his people from out of the strong man, Pharaoh's house, and uh, plundered Pharaoh in that way. That's what Christ does for us in the ultimate way. He delivers us from are in slavery to sin, and he brings us out also for the purpose of honoring him and living for him. That's also Paul's point in Romans 6. So just as the Israelites were delivered for the purpose of going and worshiping God, so we are delivered from our slavery to sin to obey, to be righteous, to be sanctified. And also another element with the Red Sea to touch on briefly, Um, it's an event of redemptive judgment. So we talked about this with Noah, how on the one, and even with the Passover is like this as well, there is at the same time, redemption of God's people and judgment of God's enemies. So you have God's people passing through the waters of judgment while the enemies are swallowed up by those very same waters. if you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, there's another reference to the Red Sea specifically in this kind of light. A really interesting little passage in 1 Corinthians 10. But again, you have this idea of the people of God. You know, God makes a way for them to pass through the judgment while the enemies are they suffer the judgment. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And he goes on there. Keep yourselves in 1 Corinthians 10 if you're going to look at what he says. But Paul in this place, specifically likens the Red Sea event to baptism, and, you know, again, like you mentioned with the sacraments of the New Testament, we kind of think of baptism as corresponding most closely with circumcision, and there is a correspondence there, but really explicitly in the New Testament, you have baptism referred to with the Red Sea, Noah, Um, and again, there's in part with circumcision, which again, we get to the new covenant in the spring, we'll talk about baptism, but specifically here, it's likened to the Red Sea. The Red Sea is a type of baptism. And, um, again, when we understand the Red Sea as God's people passing through the judgment, we better understand what baptism signifies that in baptism, what it represents is that we are passing through the waters of judgment which under which we should be condemned, right? Because, you know, we are not beloved sons in and of ourselves with whom God is well pleased. We are sinful. The waters should swallow us up. But in Christ, we pass through that judgment. And even um, when he talks about your, they were baptized into Moses, that means that they were baptized uh, into this earth old covenant system and the old covenant blessings, meaning the land especially, we are baptized in the name of the triune God. We are baptized into the new covenant and its blessings. And baptism for us is a testimony that we are in Christ and participate in his blessings. And even when you think about um, the fact that At the Red Sea, God's people passed through and his enemies were swallowed up. There's that much greater amplification in baptism where we pass through the judgment, but it's God's son who underwent the judgment for us. In Colossians 2, it says that um, we were buried with Christ by baptism into death. And so Christ... He suffered the judgment that we deserve. When we are baptized, it represents that we are joined to him in, pass- in, in conquering through that judgment in his resurrection. And part of that's why we like to mm. immerse. <laughs> exactly, that's symbolism. Um, so Jesus suffered the judgment, allowing us to pass through it. Um, do you guys have any questions about that? I know we're moving kind of fast, and so this can be a little bit tricky. Um, this next one, I think I want to move through even a little bit more quickly. Um, so get your right hand ready because the last one I want to spend a little bit more time on. Um, so next one is the, the idea in the old covenant with Moses as the covenant mediator. And you even get this in that first Corinthians passage when Paul says they were baptized into Moses. Uh, you have this idea of Moses playing this intermediary role between the people and God. Um, when we think about Moses' as mediator of the old covenant, we think about him as being the one who was called by God through whom God would deliver his people. That was at the burning bush when God said, I'm going to send you to deliver my people out of uh, slavery. It was Moses who... Proclaimed God's law to the people, and who also proclaimed the way of salvation to the people under the old covenant. So, Moses, through whom the law was given, uh, it was Moses who interceded for the people. We talked about that the last couple weeks, especially in Exodus 32 and 33 with the golden calf, how God was ready to judge the people, but Moses prayed on their behalf, asked God uh, to spare them of that judgment and so was effective in his intercession again you can't overstate the significance of this in its own context moses historically and really truly used by god to mediate the old covenant law and the old covenant blessings to the people that he played that role and really Moses is extremely unique in the entire Old Testament. There's really nobody else like Moses. He is the mediator of the Old Covenant. Um, just the, his, the kind of access that he had to God, the direct representation of the people that he had before God, the direct representation from God that he had to the people is very unique, and there's no one quite like him in the Old Testament. And yet Moses... For all of his greatness and for all of his you know, usefulness uh, to God, he could only do so much. Um, he could, you know, through the power of God, deliver the people from Egypt, but he could not set the people free from sin. All of this, you know, it anticipates something better, that Moses could deliver them the law written on tablets of stone, but he could not write the law on the people's hearts that Moses could intercede for the people to spare them judgment under the old covenant, but he couldn't spare them from final ultimate judgment before the throne of God. So it looks forward to something better. All these roles that Moses played look forward sounds like Hebrews. <laughs> exactly. It is. And that's, I mean, honestly, Hebrews, man, like it's, it's, I think Hebrews is really like kind of a key to understanding all the Bible. It's, it's like all the Old
1: Testament.
0: Oh my goodness. It really is. It's like a, it's like a little, it's like a legend for a map. If you understand Hebrews, then you can put a lot of it together. Dude, he
1: sounds like
0: the right yeah. Hebrews <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're going to, again, talk a lot about Hebrews in just a minute here, Um But Moses, even the the type of covenant that he mediated, it was a covenant, yes, that was gracious, but it had to be kept. The law of the covenant, we talked about this, had to be obeyed for the people to receive and enjoy the blessings. Jesus mediates a covenant of total free grace. That's what in John's prologue, that last line of it, that the law came through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ that's what it's getting at. And again, there you have that biblical connection of Moses and Jesus. Also in Hebrews, you get a lot of that. But it's not as if the Mosaic covenant was ungracious or untruthful. It's that it was it was different. It was a covenant based on law substantially where, and again, we talked about there's law and there's grace. There's guarantees from God and there's things that people have to earn. But substantially with Moses, who's based on law. The people had to obey. With Christ, the blessings are received on the basis of grace alone. And with Jesus, he doesn't just, like we talked about uh, with the Exodus, it's not just a deliverance from physical slavery, but he delivers from death itself. He delivers us from the judgment of death. That he, he does proclaim the law, but he also transforms us so that we are able to love and to keep the law. That Jesus mediates on our behalf to protect us from uh, the final judgment, from the finality of death. He delivers us from the fear of death. Turn to John 17, just as a, a glimpse at the kind of intercession that Jesus... Uh, that Jesus gives for his people. John 17, verses 20 through 26. Jesus, praying for the Father, says, I do not ask for these only, speaking of the disciples, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Again, that's just a sample of the way that Jesus intercedes for us. Moses could not pray that kind of prayer for the people. You know, Jesus saying, I want them to be with me in glory. Father, keep them in your love. Make them one, even as we are one. Jesus intercedes for us in a way that is far beyond what Moses could ever do. Um, and even just, uh, you know, if you guys want to write down, I don't know if I put these in your outlines, but 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 18 is a great place to look to see this comparison of Jesus and Moses. Okay, perfect. They're on the outline. Yeah, Hebrews 7, 1 John 2. Some other places for you guys to look. Um, But if we understand Moses' role as mediator, again, you understand it in its context, you appreciate what he did, but understanding it um, that God established the old covenant order through him his intercessory role, the the redemptive work that Moses plays, all of that helps us to understand the kind of role that Jesus plays as the new covenant mediator. Um, that Moses' mediation, yes, extremely meaningful in itself, but it's brought to a deeper, fuller meaning in Christ. When you understand what Moses was doing, it helps us to better understand what Christ does. Does that make sense? Yes. Good. So the last one that I want to talk about tonight, a little bit of a darker note, Um, (laughs) it is, but this is also important, is uh, covenant judgment and the idea of apostasy, because at least me personally, and I think all of us to a degree, we read a lot of the New Testament warnings about, um, you know, falling away, abandoning the faith. All of those sorts of warnings, even in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, yes. if you go beyond what he said about the Red Sea, he talks about um, you know failing to attain what is promised and, and things like that. We read a lot of those, and I think many of us as Christians struggle very much with this because we do believe and affirm the perseverance of the saints, that we can have assurance of our faith, that we are saved to the uttermost. We believe all that, and yet in the New Testament we have these very solemn warnings about uh falling away and mostly when we see those it's drawing on the example of the exodus generation who were brought out of slavery who went through the red sea but who all perished in the wilderness and failed to enter the promised land and that's constantly held up in the new testament as the example of Apostasy, of failing to actually attain the blessings that are kind of right there before you, but you don't get them, of falling away, so to speak. And so uh, I really believe that to better understand how we should take these and think about these New Testament warnings, you know we really need to try to understand what's being referred back to in the Old Testament. And I think the most concrete example that's intrinsic, in the the generation that failed to get to the promised land is Moses himself because Moses was part of that generation that perished in the wilderness and so if you guys would please turn to Exodus chapter 17 and it's also significant to think about Moses because he's someone who we know based on scripture is you know with the Lord, that he did have faith, and yet he suffered the same judgment in the wilderness as the rest of the unfaithful generation, which is constantly the example that we're to, you know, see that and take note and not repeat their errors. Um, So Exodus 17 is where we're going to look first. And this is after they've left Egypt, before they've come to Mount Sinai, But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand, the staff with which you struck the Nile and go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So what we have going on here with Moses, um, just to fully appreciate you know, what's happening, you have Moses, you know, the people are you know, ready to stone him, ready to kill him, grumbling against him. And the glory cloud that led the people in the wilderness that didn't depart from the people was there over the rock in the wilderness. And God commanded Moses to, um, to actually take his staff and strike through the glory cloud onto the rock and water would come out. And what this was a picture of was God suffering for the sake of his people in order to bring them life from that rock. Because this, I think it's hard for us to kind of imagine what that glory cloud was. I and mean, this was the physical manifestation of God with the people. And God said to Moses, strike me, strike the cloud, and I'm going to bring water from this rock. This is a picture of God being, um, you know, almost, you know, scorned put to shame, held up in contempt, really sacrificed for the sake of his people. And we know that Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Jesus is the one who actually physically suffered and was sacrificed in order to bring his people life. Jesus says of himself that I am the water of life. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that Jesus was the rock in the wilderness. And so there's no question that Jesus is, the fulfillment of what's going on here in Exodus 17, the one who suffers and is sacrificed for his people. God is called to strike him, uh, calls Moses to strike him once so that the people would know that he will always supply their need. Now turn over to Numbers chapter 20, and this is the offense that causes Moses to be disinherited. Uh, We find in Numbers 20. So in chapter 17, God commands Moses this one time, strike me. I'm going to bring forth water from this rock. And that is to show the people that God suffers, brings them life, and that God will continue to supply their needs in the wilderness. Numbers 20, beginning in verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said... Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell upon their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them to give to drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. So now you have this second event where same situation, people are thirsty, the rock is there, the rock that represents the glory of God in the cloud. And God tells Moses this time, to call upon the rock, to speak to the rock, and it would yield its water. Um, that implies that the the rock itself, again, after having been struck once, after the glory of God was struck that one time, it showed that God was going to continue to um, provide life for his people, to supply his people's need, exactly. And so that was the command of God to Moses, but instead Moses does the same thing as before not allowed by the lord striking the rock where the glory cloud dwelt and In effect, what he was doing was causing God to suffer once again, sacrificing God once again, scorning God once again. And as we're told right there in the text, not upholding God as holy before the people, but instead, uh, you know, asserting his own will over that of God and uh, taking it upon himself Mm -hmm. to make that sacrifice of God for the people. And this goes back to a lot of what we talked about last week, with the sacrificial system and those who would presume upon the grace of God. The attitude that says, well, there's a sacrifice for sins, so I'm going to willfully, intentionally sin, and I'll just bring my sacrifice later. God, The sacrificial system was not intended to cover that. It's a similar attitude with Moses here, that God was gracious and gave himself once for the people, allowed Moses to strike him that time for the sake of the people. And now Moses presumes upon that, takes it upon himself to strike the Lord, to bring forth the water, to disregard his holiness and to hold him in contempt. And this is the reason why Moses was disinherited. It's not because he was angry. It's not because, um, you know, he was a bad example in front of the people, but it's because he presumed upon God's grace. He did not regard God's holiness and he held God in contempt at this time before the people. And so if we understand this situation, and again, Moses kind of representing the whole of that first generation that didn't make it into the land. Now, keep in mind, The old covenant is itself a type of the new covenant. It's a picture of what the new covenant will be like. And so the old covenant judgment being cut off from the blessings cut off from the land is like the new covenant judgment, but it's not the same being cut off under the old covenant did not mean that you uh, would not be or could not be reconciled to God. Moses was reconciled to God. So it's not the same, but it's similar, just like the new covenant the old covenant blessings of the land and the offspring and all the rest is like the new covenant blessings, but it's not exactly the same. We have the heavenly Jerusalem. We have, you know, the we are to make disciples of all the nations and, and so on. So now I turn to Hebrews chapter six. Because Hebrews six, this is One of the most sobering and scary passages in all of Scripture, it's one of those passages that we really wrestle with, especially when we affirm perseverance of the saints and assurance of our salvation. But it's a real warning, it's a sober warning, and it's one that we need to take very, very seriously. Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 8, we read this. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up in contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those... Uh, to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So again, a very sobering verse that we need to take seriously, and we best understand this passage when we understand the type that points forward to it. So consider that this Hebrew six comes in the context of the last two chapters that's talking specifically about this generation of Israelites that passed through the Red Sea, but that died in the wilderness. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't be like those guys. Don't be like the Israelites who didn't make it into the land. And so the warning here is... um, against that same sin that moses was guilty of that sin of presuming on god's grace and so just as um moses and really the whole generation but moses specifically he understood who god was he understood god's holiness he experienced it firsthand he, uh, he understood God's grace, his power, his majesty, his glory, and all the rest of it. And yet, knowing all of that, he willfully chose to strike that cloud of glory, knowing everything that he knew about God, and he was disinherited for that. So in a similar way, this passage in Hebrews is a warning to those who know the truth about God, who know what Jesus Christ has done, who understand the grace of the gospel, who affirm the grace of the gospel, who, uh, who, who know God's holiness, who know the seriousness of sin and the weight of all of that, and yet still willfully, intentionally, and consistently choose to sin against God, who knowingly disregard and disobey God's commandments, and the punishment for that is disinheritance. That's what's being warned of here in Hebrews. A disinheritance. Now, again, we know in the from the New Testament that those ultimately who are disinherited from the New Covenant were never in the covenant to begin with. Those who went out from us were never of us. But this is this is a passage that's talking to people who are going to stand before God on the last day and say, "Lord, did we not do all these things in your name?" It's talking to people who receive the sign of the covenant, who received the sign of baptism, saying that, you know, testifying I passed the judgment, people who profess faith. That's what makes it all the more severe because you know who God is, you know his holiness, you know the grace of the gospel and yet you still willingly and willfully choosing to sin. And like I said, disinheritance in the old covenant, that's being cut off from the land and the blessings, the physical blessings. Disinheritance in the new covenant, that's being cast into the outer darkness. That's being cut off wholly and completely and comprehensively from Christ and from life. And this is where, you know, that language in Hebrews 6 where he says that they are crucifying once again the son of god and holding him up in contempt we understand that in light of what moses did and striking once again god making god once again to suffer what you're doing for those who are again uh willfully deliberately choosing to sin in full knowledge of what uh of what they're doing while looking at Christ and rationalizing it saying, Well, there is a sacrifice for sin. God has you know put this his you know Christ has been crucified, so I'm gonna go ahead and sin and then I'll just repent of it and be restored in Christ. That is that's the attitude that is being warned against in Hebrews. And that's the attitude where and I know that I'm kind of preaching right now, but If that is your heart attitude, that is a massive red flag because it is is effectively saying, I understand that Jesus Christ was made a curse for my sin. I'm going to add to that curse. I'm going to willfully sin and make Christ once again be cursed. Again, knowingly and willfully. And then there's that last analogy in the Hebrews passage that is once again very scary and telling, talking about... Um, the land that's drunk the rain and produced the crop and all of that, he's saying that if there is you know, a piece of land and all the circumstances are right for it to grow and to bear fruit, it gets all the sunshine, all the rain, all the soil, all the nutrients that it needs, and if it still bears thorns and thistles and is fruitless, like... John the Baptist says the axe needs to be laid to the root of that tree. It needs to be burned with fire. That's, you know, that's, where, that's what it means when Jesus says you'll know them by their fruits, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. It is talking about this very thing that if, we, if there's a person who is receiving, that is in an environment where fruitful faith, Can flourish where there is constant exhortation and accountability and teaching and fellowship and love and all the rest of it and yet the only thing that's being born is thorns and thistles it's like if you go and you keep planting a weed and you water it and you do everything right and then you're surprised when it keeps growing and it's still a weed christ needs to change that that person is not saved not in christ and so again very dangerous place to be if you're living in disregard of the holiness of God, disregard of his commandments. And it doesn't mean that you cannot be saved. Moses was reconciled to God. But what it does indicate, if this is characterizing your life, that kind of attitude, it indicates that you are not in the new covenant and you need to, um, Recognize that and repent and trust in Christ because in a, one of the blessings, one of the promises of the new covenant is a new heart that loves God's law, not that perfectly obeys it, but that repents of sin. Repentance is a gift and a blessing of the new covenant. And if you're not bearing that fruit of repentance, then it indicates that you're not in that covenant and God doesn't owe you that fruit of repentance either. If you're in the covenant, God is going to give you a repentant heart. If you're not, He doesn't have to do that. So, um, yeah, He has no obligation to grant us repentance. And so again, just um, I know that's a uh, you know very sober, but it's it, it helps us. In, go ahead. What do no, you I, don't say?
1: Know. I was just thinking like sometimes even the closer we are in the body of Christ to the Lord. In this way, in the context he's talking about, we're showing contempt for Christ because you're not truly in Him, even though you have the outward kind of manifestations. Or you're saying that you're in Him, but you're not really. And and so what you're actually doing is showing more and more contempt for Him. And that it's, so they're not like, Yo, I'm just messing up. Forgive me, Lord. When we, when we play that game, we're showing contempt for mm-hmm. the work of Christ. Anymore. And exactly. that's judgment. And, and 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 that's just real quick like, and I know we're late. No, sorry, it's alright, no. But you keep going back to First Corinthians ten. And you guys it's all it's all here too, but and it's kind of given for our example as well, because he talks about they drank from the spiritual rock and followed down that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, uh, with most of them God was not pleased. They were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, like Luke has been saying all night, teaching us do not be idolaters as some of them some of them were. The people sat down to eat, drink, rose up. We must not indulge in sexual morality. You know, stay away from these things. Twenty-three thousand fell in one day. Do not put Christ to the test. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of like showing that that contempt for him. Exactly. And then he goes on in the end, he says, in verse twelve. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands stands take heed lest he falls. Yes. And that's really. You know, I think in a real practical way, in terms of he's talking about this covenant covenant judgment. Sometimes those the ones closest to us, have, like Judas, had so much contempt for Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. He never loved. It. He never. He always kind of showed that, and kind of was one of them, and all that. But he was always the son of perdition. And you
0: know, so that's something like a real warning for us, mm-hmm. I think. And it and it's very true that it's. Nobody is beyond the grace of God. And I don't believe that what this Hebrews 6 passage is saying is that it is impossible no. for God to save such a person. I think that it's talking about how we as a church ought to treat you know people like that in terms of excommunication and cut off from the body and things like that. Um, and also it's speaking of the danger of being in that place. That if you have that kind of contempt for God and the sacrifice of Christ, it reveals a hardness of heart towards God's grace. It reveals that you, know, you really don't understand or appreciate um, the weight of that grace. And it's and the harder you are towards God's grace, the harder it is to be saved. Like, you know, the way that Jesus says it's hard for a rich person to be saved doesn't mean that it's impossible. But for those who are so hardened against the grace of God, so callous to it, to have such a Attitude of disregard, it's very hard for that person to be saved. It's hard for the grace of God to break through that. So, again, that's just another example. And part of the reason why I wanted to really go in deep on that was to show us how very practical all of this is. That sometimes it can seem, oh, typology and covenant, it's so abstract. It's very, very practical. And it really has a bearing on us understanding. Um, our relationship to God in Christ, what God expects of us, um, you know, what what God has promised us—all of these things—it has very practical day-to-day applications for us. Um, and so, you know, I hope that this has been helpful for all of you guys. Is there any... It's
1: been great. I wish thoughts? I was in all of these. And, and, and I've been listening. I know Kathy Z, I had with her. She said she'd been listening to these and just been so helpful, Luke. So I just want to really encourage you in all of this. But in one real great practical way, especially with this tonight, like we're dialoguing with unbelievers. And right now, the Bible's really under attack. You know, like the Old Testament, New Testament, how's that? This These kind of... The covenants, obviously, but even the types, these kinds of things are talking points that we could have that shows the inspiration of Scripture. This is, And this is why we believe it. It was foreshadowed here. You could see it fulfilled here after all that, that time and God working in that. So when you're talking to people in a very practical way, it's not disconnected. It's very much connected. It very much flows. Mm-hmm. It's sufficient. The sufficiency of Scripture it really teaches us that. So I think in this day and age where the Bible's really coming under attack, the inspiration, the sufficiency, how can you trust it? This is one way that shows God superintends over it and He makes it because what happened back then is a pit is a fulfillment is fulfilled here and a lot of these in our types and shadows. So we had a very practical conversation, mm-hmm. witnessing, trying to explain why he said this is why one of the big reasons we believe because there's this coherency from beginning to end the consistency and you can see that in the types and shadows it's really good mm-hmm. i mean people might not listen and there's someone yeah. blow us off but you know
0: uh, and yeah i mean it helps us that,
1: in so many ways i'm i've yeah very appreciative
0: yeah